rolling. Thank you guys again for uh, being here and for listening all week. Uh, I really enjoy teaching this class and just um, getting to dive into stories with you because that's something I love and I'm passionate about. And um, quick recap, day one, we talked about how stories shape us more than anything else. And um, your life is a story. Your story needs to be shared with others. And what was the third point? Mine's going blank. Let me look that through real quick. Your story should be shaped by God's story. Oh, yeah, the Bible. <laughs> uh, we talked about how important it is to be in God's Word every single day and how, um, how that's the story that should be shaping us. And little bits at a time, reading your Bible is not a sprint, it's a marathon, okay? It's a lifelong journey. Yesterday, we talked about how um, there are false stories and false narratives in this world that are trying to pull us away from the truth and lead to our own destruction. We need to be aware of those. And we ended yesterday reading from Matthew chapter 7 that said that when Jesus was teaching, he taught as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. And what was the root word of authority? Author. So Jesus taught the scriptures as the author of scriptures, as if he wrote them, not as if he was copying what someone else said. That's a huge, huge important detail. And what I want you to see today is I want you to see God's, I want you to see your story from the perspective of the author himself. Before that, let me tell you another story. There was a guy around the late 1800s, early 1900s in London by the name of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a famous writer. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's dream was to be uh, like one of the most famous writers of all time, but what he loved writing was historical fiction. He loved authors like Charles Dickens and guys like that. He wanted to be that famous. He wanted to be in that category, and he was striving for that every day, but he was poor, he was nearly broke, he was about to be kicked out of his apartment, and he was like starving. He couldn't pay the bills. He had to find a way to make money. And this local magazine called Strand Magazine approached him with an idea. They said, hey, we want to, uh, to publish a series of short stories in the detective genre. Would you be interested in writing some? And he said, sure. I hate the detective genre, but fine, I'll go ahead and write them. And he invented a character by the name of Sherlock Holmes who is one of the most famous characters in the entire Western canon. And he wrote these short stories, and all of London freaked out. They could not get enough of Sherlock Holmes. They thought, this is the most incredible, coolest character we've ever seen. We got, we got to have more. And so he continued to write more. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle became like this hit sensation. He became extremely famous, extremely wealthy. He was making bank off Sherlock Holmes. And then he finally decided, you know what? I think I've reached this level I want to be at. I can start writing about the things I really want to write about. Plus, he hated the detective genre, and he was ready to be done with it. Why did he hate it? Well, for one, in order to write about Sherlock Holmes, you have to be smarter than Sherlock Holmes, and that was kind of hard. He had a really hard time inventing new creative stories. 
and writing detective stories is really time consuming because you have to plot out every little detail and it all has to make sense at the end and the mystery has to be uncovered but there has to be little hints that are dropped along the way but they have to be subtle because you can't give away the ending. It's really hard work. And he was wearing himself out writing these stories. He was ready to be done with it. So what did he do? He killed Sherlock Holmes. In a famous story, he took Sherlock Holmes's nemesis, Moriarty, and killed him and said, fine, that's it. I'm done with it. Time to move on to the stuff I really want to write about. Well, London was in an uproar. They were not having it. They were, people were like canceling their subscriptions to Strain Magazine. They were writing like bad, threatening letters like, bring Sherlock Holmes back to life. You can't kill off this incredible character. We love him too much. So Strain Magazine brought out a contract that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had signed, and they said, look, you got to keep writing about Sherlock Holmes. So he resurrected Sherlock Holmes against his own wishes and continued writing about Sherlock Holmes the rest of his life. And towards the end of his life, he actually said that one of the biggest regrets of his life was that he ever created Sherlock Holmes. And this is what he said. I believe that if I had never touched Holmes, my position in literature would be a much more commanding one. Guys, I hear that story and it kind of breaks my heart because Sherlock Holmes is so famous and he's such a cool character. And the author himself, the creator himself, looks at his creation and says, I wish I'd never made you. Like, you've ruined my life. <laughs> That's so sad. And the, I think the reason that I'm sad deep down inside is not because I love Sherlock Holmes so much. I think he's cool, but I don't have like this deep affection for Sherlock Holmes. The reason that story makes me so sad is because somewhere deep down inside, I have this fear that my author feels the same way about me. And I wonder if you feel that way too. That deep down inside, you're wondering, does my creator have those kind of regrets about me? Does he wish that he had never made me? Because we learn on day one, your life is a story. And it's a, it's a story that is unfolding day in and day out. But deep down inside, are you wondering, does my author really love me and care about me? Or am I that part of creation that he wished he had never made? What I want you to see this morning is that your author loves you so much that he has written this story of yours in absolute love and affection. And we're going to walk through that and uncover it today. And I want to talk about three things. Number one, your story is not an accident. Number two, your story was written in love. And number three, your story already has an ending. Before we do that, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Now, I would bet most of you may have the English Standard Version. That's what I normally read from. Today, I'm going to do something a little different and read from the New American Standard Version, which is also a very accurate translation of the Bible. But I love the way they phrase certain words in here because it just, it kind of think it brings to life what uh, the author is saying in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne 
of God. Let's pray. God, we need you this morning. Help us to see that as the author of our faith, as the author of our stories, you have loved us with a deep, abiding love that we cannot fathom. So would you help us to see things from your perspective? Help us to see the love that you have poured into our own stories. And Lord, I pray that that love would change us, that it would shape us and mold us and drive us into your arms. And God, I pray that you would speak through me and give me words and open the hearts of everyone in this room. In Christ's name, amen. Number one, your story is not an accident. Uh, I am a huge fan of Pixar. And I know some of you may have gone to see Toy Story 4 yesterday. If you did, do not tell me what happened. I'm going this weekend, I think, see it with my kids. But um, I love Pixar so much. I think they do such a great job telling stories. And a few years ago, I read an article by the creators of Pixar. It was called 21 Tips for Storytelling. And the article was really intended for authors and storytellers and writers. And they were just like quick, like really interesting, like one to two sentence tidbits. Like... Uh, one of the things they said was, uh, a coincidence that gets your character into trouble is fun. A coincidence that gets them out of trouble is cheating. Oh, that's a really cool little tidbit. Like, the, the creators of Pixar know what they're doing. In other words, that's what I'm saying. They know how to tell stories. Here's another tip that they gave. They said, when you finish your first draft, go back and combine characters so that every character in your story matters. In other words, you can't have characters floating out on the side that don't really serve a purpose. Every character in your story has to matter. If you watch any Pixar movie, you would know that. Every character serves a purpose. They don't have wasted characters in their stories. Now, if the creators of Pixar can figure that out, how much more does the author of our story, the author of all creation, know that about his story? In other words, what I'm saying is, you are not a wasted character. You are not an accident. Your story is purposeful. You are here for a reason. You want proof of that? Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. In other words, what he's saying, intricately woven in my mother's womb. Is another way of saying that. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So what's the psalmist saying? He's saying, God, before I was even born, you wrote down every one of my days in your book. He actually says the word in your book. Referring to God as the author of our stories. God has written down every one of your days in his book, then what in the world would make you think that your life is an accident, or that you're not supposed to be here, or that your story doesn't matter? You are here for a purpose and a reason. And listen to me. I'm not saying that so that you can feel better about yourself or boost your self-esteem. I'm actually saying that to humble you, because I want you to see that life is about more than just the way you feel in the moment. Because you might wake up one morning and feel like you don't belong and feel like you're here by accident and feel like you're not serving any purpose. And those are legitimate feelings, okay? I'm not trying to say that those feelings don't matter. Those are legitimate feelings. What I'm trying to get you to do is this. Lean into the truth 
not your feelings. Lean into the truth that God put you here for a reason and your story is not an accident. He has written down every one of your days in his book because that's how much the author loves you. Speaking of which, your story was written in love. Our second point, number two. Your story was written in love. When I was a kid, I used to ask this question all the time. How does God hear all of our prayers at the same time? I was always baffled by that. And I would ask adults, Sunday school teachers, preachers, whatever, how does God hear all of our prayers at the same time? And this is the answer I would get. I would go, well, you know, here's, here's how it works. It's kind of like, like imagine, it's kind of, well, it's kind of, you know, it's like, the, I think the best, it's, it, what, he's God, okay? You know, he's, he's God. That was the answer I would get. And I'd just be like, Okay, I knew that, but like, how does he hear all of our prayers at the same time? I never could get a good answer until I was in college and I read an article by, guess who, C.S. Lewis, and he explained that better than anybody I've ever heard, of course. But this is what he said. Here's how God hears all of our prayers at the same time. If God is the author of our story, and as the author, he exists outside of time and he is not bound by time in the same way we are let me let me spell this out for you so that you get a really vivid image of what i mean here how many of y'all have read the chronicles of narnia all right i'm going to use the chronicles of narnia as an example of this uh in the first book the lion the witch in the wardrobe and i know you may be thinking i thought the magician's nephew was the first book. no it's the lion the witch in the wardrobe okay because that's the one he wrote first and i think you need to read them in the order that he wrote them that's just a little side note uh, actually, here's the, here's, the, here's the reason why I think you should read them in the order he wrote them. Because in this scene I'm about to tell you about, the, the four children, uh, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, they're in the beaver's hut, and they hear the name Aslan for the first time. Now, if you've already read The Magician's Nephew, you already know who Aslan is, and it ruins the moment. Okay, So that's why you need to read them in the order that he wrote them. The line of which in the wardrobe is first. Okay, moving on. They're in the beaver's hut, and he says, Aslan is on the move. And each of the four children have a different reaction to the name Aslan at the same time. So this is a moment in Narnia time that happens simultaneously. It's like one second in Narnia time. C.S. Lewis says this. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if a delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. All four of them have this reaction at the same time. So this is one second in Narnia time. But I want you to step out of Narnia for a second. Use your imaginations. Let's step into a dusty old office somewhere in Oxford, England. I don't know if that's where he wrote Chronicles of Narnia, but let's just pretend like that's where he wrote it, okay? <laughs> And C.S. Lewis is sitting at a desk with a lamp, and he's got pen and parchment because it was a really long time ago, and now he probably didn't use a typewriter. I don't know. Maybe he did. But let's just pretend it's pen and parchment because it looks cooler in our minds. Okay, he's sitting there, and he's writing this story, and he gets to this scene, and the beavers say, Aslan is on the move, and he stops, and he thinks to himself, how are the kids going to respond to the name Aslan? Let's start with Edmund. Maybe he gets up and he walks around. Maybe grab a cup of coffee. Edmund is going to feel a mysterious sensation of horror. That's what it is. And he writes it down. And then he moves on to Peter. And he gives Peter his time and his undivided attention as the author. And then he moves on to Susan and Lucy. You see what he's doing? 
as the author, he is not bound by Narnian time. He is able to deal with each one of them individually, even though it's all happening at the same time in Narnia. Here's what I'm saying. When you pray to God, your author gives you his undivided attention in that moment. That's how much he loves you. It's not like when you pray to God, he's got a thousand different phones ringing at the same time in the throne room, and he's frantically running around like, oh my gosh, okay, which one's, I'm going to put that on hold. This is more important. Like, he's not freaking out in the throne room, okay? When you pray to God, your author exists outside of your time and my time so that he can deal with you and listen to you in that. It is, it is literally as if God is sitting on the edge of his seat waiting for you to talk to him. And when you do, every other call gets put on hold. That's how much your author cares about you. That should change the way that we pray, shouldn't it? That should change the way that we come to Jesus. Because our creator has given us his infinite, undivided attention. You will not get that from anyone else in this world. But your creator has given it to you. That's how much you are loved. But it goes further than that. All right, I've been geeking out this morning. We talked about Sherlock Holmes, Chronicles of Narnia. Let's talk about Lord of the Rings, okay? Uh, I love Lord of the Rings. I love the movies. I, they're like my favorite movies of all time. I actually think the books are even better. Uh, they're a little bit harder to read uh, than like Harry Potter or something, but they're worth it. They're so good. I read them when I was in high school, and I've recently been rereading them. Okay, so for those of you who, who may not know, brief summary of Lord of the Rings. There's this hobbit named Frodo who has this ring of power. It's this small, but it's the most powerful weapon in Middle Earth, and he has to destroy it before the Dark Lord can get his hands on it. And so he goes on this epic journey to destroy the ring. And this ring, whenever Frodo puts it on, what, what happens? He turns invisible, okay? Whenever the big heroes of the story see that ring, like Aragorn, Gandalf, Galadriel, they can't touch it. They can't even look at it because it's so powerful and so tempting. That's how powerful this weapon is. Okay, you need to know this is the most powerful weapon in all of Middle Earth. And towards the beginning of this journey in the Fellowship of the Ring, there's a part in the book that is left out of the movie. I think Peter Jackson left it out because it's just weird. And, and I get it. But it's also fascinating. Frodo and his friends are caught in the woods and they're like being attacked by ghosts and trees. And all of a sudden they are rescued by this guy named Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil is basically this hermit who lives out in the middle of the woods. And he just, he's like a jolly old elf. He just sings nonsense songs all day. He kind of walks around. I just imagine him kind of prancing around with overalls and singing songs to the trees. And he says that he's been alive for longer than the trees have. And he's married to a river goddess and they live in a cabin in the woods. Like his life is crazy. Okay, let's just deal with that. And he, said, he rescues the hobbits, brings them back home, and then he's like, Frodo, tell me what you're doing. And Frodo tells him about his journey, and then Tom says, let me see that ring of yours. So Frodo hands him the ring, Tom picks it up and holds it, and already Frodo's going, whoa, nobody's, like Gandalf was scared to touch this ring, like what's going on? And then he flicks the ring up in the air, and in midair, it vanishes. And then he reaches behind him and pulls the ring out from behind him. He's doing magic tricks with the ring of power like it's no big deal. And he's just laughing and giggling the whole time and singing songs. Like, he's just, like, the, the hobbits are freaking out because they're like, who is this guy? Why are we in his house? I don't know what's going on. And then Tom Bombadil puts the ring on his own finger and he doesn't disappear. 
All right, the hobbits are incredibly freaked out. He takes the ring off, hands it back to Frodo, and he says, let's, uh, let's get some supper. I'm hungry. It just moves on like that was nothing. Frodo thinks that Tom has pulled a fast one on him at this point. He thinks that he switched the ring out when it, when it uh, vanished in midair. So Frodo's a little concerned. And as the hobbits are like over here in the corner, Frodo goes to the other corner to test it out, puts the ring on his finger quietly when nobody can see him. And sure enough, he vanishes and realizes, wow, this is the ring of power. And it didn't make Tom vanish. What's going on? Well, as he is sitting there in the corner, invisible, this is what Tom does. He looks over at him and goes, Frodo, I see you with that ring on. Come on over here and join us for supper. Take it off. Let's not mess with that right now. He sees Frodo when he's invisible. That's not supposed to happen, okay? Nobody else can do that in Middle Earth. And Tom Bombadil is in this story for like two chapters, and then he's barely mentioned again the rest of the time. And you leave that part of the book just going like, who is this guy? Well, scholars and critics had the same question for J.R.R. Tolkien. And they would ask him over and over again, like, Tolkien, you've got to tell us, who's Tom Bombadil? And his answer was always, some mysteries are better left untold. He just wouldn't tell them. And then other people would say, is Tom Bombadil like the most powerful character in Middle Earth? This was Tolkien's response. He would say, it's not that he's the most powerful character. It's that Tom Bombadil exists outside of the powers of Middle Earth. The powers of Middle Earth don't affect him. Now, Tolkien never confirmed this, but he also never denied it. And a lot of scholars have theorized that Tom Bombadil is J.R.R. Tolkien. That he wrote himself into the story because he loved Middle Earth so much. He wanted to be a part of it. Now, Tolkien was a Christian, and I think I know where he got that idea. Because this story... The author does the same thing. And on a cold, dark night in Bethlehem, a baby cries. And that baby is the king of all creation. That baby is the author himself who wrote himself into the story because he loved his creation so much. And he became a part of it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Your author loves you so much. It goes beyond that. Hebrews 12, what we read earlier. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Okay, the cross was not a joyful thing. It was not a joyful event. No one would ever want to endure it. So why does Hebrews say that he endured it for the joy that was set before him? What was that joy? We need to go to Isaiah 53 to find out what that joy is. Isaiah is a prophet of the Old Testament who exists, who lived hundreds of years before Jesus, and he prophesied about Jesus coming. And Isaiah 53 is the chapter where Isaiah tells about Jesus being crucified on the cross, hundreds of years before it happened. And this is what Isaiah says in verses 10 and 11. Guys, I think this is awesome. So follow me here. This is pretty deep, but you've got to follow me. Verses 10 and 11. Also, uh, there's a lot of pronouns in here. Him, he. I'm going to substitute the word Jesus in for them, even though they aren't in there because this was years before Jesus. But I want to make this more clear for you what's happening, what he's saying. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, Jesus. And he has put him, Jesus, to grief. And when Jesus' soul makes an offering for guilt, 
Jesus shall see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, Jesus shall see and be satisfied. What is it saying here? First off, who are the offspring of Jesus? Jesus wasn't married. He didn't have children. So who are his offspring? The children of God. Us, you, and me, the people who come after him. You know what Isaiah is saying here? This is incredible. Isaiah is saying that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the author himself is hanging on the cross. He looks forward through the annals of time, and he sees his children. He sees you. He sees me. And when his soul sees it, Isaiah says that his soul will be satisfied. In other words, as he's hanging on the cross, he looks at you and me, and he goes, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm going through this. That is the joy that's set before me. Your author loves you so much that he not only wrote himself into the story, he endured the most terrible, painful death anyone could ever endure, and he took the curse of sin on his shoulders and bore that weight for you and me, for his creatures, so that we could one day be redeemed. And that brings us to the last point. Your story already has an ending. Your story already has an ending. Back in 2007, I was in college and I was chaperoning First Press Tuscumbia here at Laguna Beach for the first RYM that I ever went to, 2007, 12 years ago. And um, I just fell in love with RYM, loved it, thought it was awesome. There was another thing that I was in love with that summer. It was not a woman. <laughs> it's a guy by the name of Harry Potter. My goodness, I started reading the books that summer and it was just blowing my mind. So I had a friend named Kurt who was, uh, who had been reading the books since he was a little kid, and all, like, year after year, he kept saying, like, Joe, man, you got to read these books. They're so fun. And I've been putting it off. I was a Lord of the Rings guy. And then he finally got me to read The Sorcerer's Stone, and I was like, man, this is great. This summer just happened to be the summer that the seventh book was being released, The Deathly Hallows, and the book was being released the week that we were here at RYM, which wasn't a big deal to me in the beginning of the summer because I thought, these are big books. It's going to take me, like, a year to read all of them. Well, I read the first six books in less than six weeks. And that last week when I had to wait for the seventh book was maybe the longest week of my life, okay? I was so addicted to Hogwarts. I just wanted to be there every single day. Anyway, while we were here, the book was released, and it was a cultural phenomenon. People were, like, lining up at bookstores. It was like a Taylor Swift concert. Like, they were, like, lines were wrapped around the bookstores, like, four or five times. People were waiting up at midnight, like, all night long for the stores to open so that they could get their copy. People here at camp were leaving camp, going to bookstores on the Thursday night when it was released and bringing it back and like spending all, like the beach was empty on Friday because everyone was in their room reading Harry Potter. That's how big of a deal it was. Well, I had to wait till I got back in town and my friend Kurt also wasn't able to go on opening night. So we both went together when we got back in town. We each got our copy of the book. And this is what Kurt does when he gets the last Harry Potter book grabs it from the, from the store, and goes, flips to the end, gets to the last page, goes, reads the last page, and then he goes, okay. And then he opens it up back to page one and starts reading. And I went, Kurt, what are you doing? You just ruined the end of Harry Potter. You've been waiting your whole life for this.
best part of the story and he ruined it. What are you thinking? And he looked at me and goes, I know, but I just had to know that everything was going to be okay. And I just went, fine, whatever. But I think about that and I think, you know what? That's actually a very human response. That even in that moment when Kurt had been waiting his whole life to read this story, he gets to it and he flips to the end because he just has to know that everything is okay. That is who we are deep down inside. And that's honestly what we want to know about our own stories, isn't it? In the midst of our stories and all the chaos and the darkness, what we really want in life is what we've been talking about this week. We want peace with God. We want to know that everything is going to be okay at the end. Guess what? Jesus knows that you want to know that. And Jesus ruined the end of the story for you in the best way possible. Jesus tells you how it ends. He gives us the book of Revelation so that we can know how the story ends. And if we have put our hope in him, then one day we will see resurrection. And here's what that looks like. I've been picking on Disney all week. Let me tell you a Disney movie that gets it right, that I love, Beauty and the Beast. That movie is incredible. There's two versions of it. There's the early 90s animated version and the live-action one that was released a couple years ago, the newer one. Uh, the, the animated version's better, okay? It just is. But there is one scene from the newer movie that I liked better. So in case you've forgotten the story, here's what's happening. There's a prince who lives in a castle who's just really mean, and this witch comes and curses him, turns him into a beast, and every servant and every person that lives in the castle also falls under the curse, and they get turned into talking pieces of furniture, basically. And this is how they live life. Now, in the animated movie, Basically, it goes like this. If the beast can't find love before the last petal of the flower falls, then they will all stay that way forever. In the new movie, the stakes are a little higher because what they say in the story is that these talking pieces of furniture, they're slowly losing their humanity, they're dying, and that if the beast doesn't find love before that last petal falls, then it's not like they stay in that state forever. They actually die. They will like turn into these cold, lifeless, you know, chest of drawers, clock, candlestick, coat rack. They're just pieces of furniture, dead. And there's a gut-wrenching scene at the end when that's happening. When the beast is dying, he hasn't found love, the petal falls, and you scan to all of these beloved pieces of furniture that you've grown to love so much, and they can feel death creeping up inside of them. They can feel themselves falling and into the weight of the curse. And old friends like Lumiere and Cogsworth are looking at each other going, goodbye, old friend. It's been an honor serving alongside. And they freeze. And they're dead. And Mrs. Potts is screaming for her son, Chip, where are you, Chip? Where's my boy? And she freezes and she's dead. And everything just becomes lifeless. It's gone. And you know the end of the story. And Belle comes. Through an act of love, the curse is reversed. Here's what happens. It's not just that all these beloved characters get brought back to life as talking pieces of furniture. They get brought back to the fullest version of themselves, the people they were meant to be all along. That is new heavens and new earth. That is what resurrection looks like. That is the end of your story. Because when you die, your story's not over. If you are in Christ, he has promised that one day he will come and 
He will bring you back to life and redeem your story. And you won't just come back to life as this version of yourself. We will come back to life as Adam and Eve before the fall. We will be our resurrected selves in resurrected bodies on a resurrected planet with the resurrected Jesus and all of the resurrected creation that is made right again. This is what we have to look forward to. This is the end of the story. Jesus already told us how it ends. What that means is that even in our darkest moments, in the worst part of our stories, we can take hope in the fact that the story's not over. There's something else coming that we have to put our hope in and our trust in. Everything will be redeemed. And that is the end of our story. Or should we say that's the beginning of our story? Because this life we live here on earth, this is a fleeting passing glimpse of eternity. This does not last. It's like this. But when we come into our resurrected selves, into the new heavens and new earth, we will be made whole. We will be made new. We will be made into what we were meant to be. I was talking about this in Colorado and uh, last week and saying, like, how awesome is it going to be in the new heavens and new earth when we get to go, like, running through the mountains and exploring God's creation and we won't get out of breath because the air is so thin. Like, imagine what it's going to be like to go out on the beach and enjoy the sand and the sun and not get sunburned because our bodies are durable and they last. Like, th little things like that. That's, that's the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we have to look forward to in resurrected bodies, made new again. That's just how the story begins. I'm going to close uh, with a couple things. First off, uh, I want to read you, this is a bold statement. These might be my favorite words that were ever written outside of the Bible. They're the last words of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. The Nar Narnia that we know has basically been remade into the new Narnia, and these kids that we've grown to love are coming into the new Narnia. And C.S. Lewis says they live happily ever after. But he says it in a way that only he can say it. He says, All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I want to do something unique right now that... Uh, Kind of makes me super self-conscious because I don't want this to come across in any way like self-serving or self-promoting. But I want to play a song for you that I actually wrote based on that passage because I want this to be a blessing for you guys. We've been talking about stories all week and how stories move us and shape us. Music does the same thing, especially music that tells a story. And so this song is actually taken from this passage. And it's, uh, it's talking about the fact that even in our darkest moments... When our story feels like it's, it's over, like nothing can be redeemed, the story's not over. There's redemption and resurrection that will come. This is called Further Up and Further In. Beneath the weight of this 
this grief and the burden that we cannot bear. This story ain't over. This story ain't over. When the dusk eats away at the light of the day and our time has set with the sun. When the shadows descend and our days come to an end and the last breath escapes from our lungs, this story ain't over. This story ain't over. Takes a murderer's hand and swaps places with him on death row. When he lays down his life and the crowd sees him die, they bury him six feet below. This story ain't over. This story ain't over. When he wipes away our tears, we've been there 2,000 years, and our pain is just part of the past. When we've gone further up, we've gone further in. And every chapter is better than the last. This story ain't over. This story ain't over. This story ain't over. This story. talking about stories all week long to know that even in our darkest like most dreadful horrifying moments of our stories that the story's not over even at that moment when death is literally hanging over our doorstep that story's not over we have something incredible to look forward to and we can begin enjoying those glimpses of the new heavens and the new earth now as we enjoy our creator and our author and I hope that you would continue to do that today as you go home, enjoy his story, and worship him in all you do. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you so much for your stories and, um, and for music and for the love that you have poured out on us. Thank you for being our author and creator who has given up everything so that we might one day be with you and dwell with you for all eternity. Would you just drive that story into our hearts and draw us toward yourself? through creation, through scripture, through friendships, relationships, through the church, through all these things, Lord, come alongside us and pull us closer to yourself so that we might love you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.